in 2013 the CEO of a new pulp company met with a bunch of wheat farmers in eastern Washington. He wanted to talk to them about entering into business together to make paper products without using any tree product. This was his idea. He was going to use the stubble of the wheat stalks to produce the pulp that would be used to make the paper. This stubble was left over after harvesting the wheat and otherwise had no commercial value and in fact it was actually a, a nuisance to get rid of. This business would give the farmers additional income and at the same time give the CEO the resources needed to create the product. And the whole process would significantly cut the emission of carbon in the whole paper making process. Sounds like a no-brainer. Brittany Robinson, who wrote an art, the article I read about this, um, she tells us the response from the farmers at this initial meeting. She writes, the farmers had been sold on plans for buying up their wheat waste for various schemes in the past, and despite many promises, none had ever come to fruition. Skepticism was high. The good news is that six years later, just a couple of years ago, Columbia Pulp Company became the first tree-free pulping facility in North America with capacity to process 240,000 tons of waste wheat straw. As I read the article the first time, and as before I got to her writing about the farmer's reaction, I was thinking that the farmers who were there uh, hearing this presentation of the plan would have been ecstatic right from the very beginning to hear about this plan. But they needed tangible proof that this idea could become reality. They had clearly heard plenty of good ideas before, but none had ever materialized. This one did and has begun to produce tangible benefits, paper products. They're even in a contract with Anheuser-Busch now. This morning, as we continue our series on the Apostles' Creed, we move from belief in God as essentially an idea, a good idea, but an idea, to we move from that to experiencing God in tangible form. The creed opens with these mind-expanding declarations of a being or an entity. I don't even know how to refer to this. Uh, with, within which our entire universe lives and moves and has its being. A universe that we proclaim in our creed 
this being or entity created in its entirety? How can we even begin to comprehend the idea for which we use the word God? The creed reminds us. We believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son. This Jesus, the Christ, is the crucial intersection between us human beings and God. For most of us, this name, Jesus Christ, has become so worn smooth that we don't tend to notice we don't tend to notice its distinctiveness all that much anymore. But this combination of the Hebrew name Yeshua and the Greek title Christos, along with the designation as Son of God, points us to a person who literally changed the course of world history. No one doubts, no one of any capacity, pretty much, doubts that this person, Jesus, existed in human, in human history. But there were thousands of Jesuses that had lived in history. That Hebrew name, Yeshua, was as common in Jesus's time and place as is James or Michael in our own. In fact, it was so common that it was usually accompanied by some other qualifier for clarity. That's why we read sometimes of Jesus of Nazareth, which was his hometown, or Jesus the Nazarene, because that helped distinguish him from the many other guys named Jesus. So that there's one sense in which we, we need to hear that name for the profoundly plain human name that it is. In that sense, us saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus, is a bit like us saying now, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Bob. You know Bob, the guy who grew up in Ferndale. Bob. The Ferndalian. We, we aren't saying that we believe in human beings as a concept or humanity as a concept. We are pointing to one very specific human being, one very specific human being who was born, lived, and died in one specific area over one specific time period. The creed will go on to emphasize this further with other names. His mom's name was Mary. They lived during the time and in the area where Pontius Pilate was governor. As I said, there is near universal agreement that there was a human being named Yeshua from Nazareth, whose mother's name was Mary, etc., if we said simply 
I believe in God and in Jesus and stop right there, most people would think, okay, it's a little weird to include in a creed, but it's fine. I mean, I really like Bob from Ferndale, but I'm not going to base my life on making a big deal out of him. The Jesus part isn't so much the unique part of the creed. It's who we proclaim we believe Jesus to be that is unique. When we say the creed, we proclaim that we believe that this Jesus is Christ. And I've explained uh, this title a lot before because it's so crucial to our understanding that Christ, as I was saying with the kids, Christ is our shortened English translation of the Greek word Christos. Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we translate in English as Messiah. All of these words, whatever language we're using, all of these words are titles. Titles that essentially mean for us God's anointed one. Throughout the first testament of our scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, there are proclamations of how God will work through Abraham and Sarah and their descendants to bring God's blessing to all nations. For centuries, the belief was that God would work through the whole entire nation of Israel, God's covenant people, to bring about this blessing for all peoples. Over time, scholars and teachers of Israel came to believe that God would raise up one specific person to be the leader of Israel and that that someone special, that one special person, would lead Israel in a way that God would use to bless the whole world. This one person would be God's unique chosen savior, the Mashiach, or in Greek, Christos, the anointed one. In our gospel stories about Jesus' life, those closest to him, while he was still alive, began to believe that this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, this human being might be the anointed one. They believed that until Jesus was arrested and crucified. That did not fit at all into what they had expected of the Messiah, the Christ. But then, this same Jesus rose from the dead, and then they believed, yes, this is the one we have hoped for. When we proclaim in the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, we are not saying we believe in a guy whose first name is Yeshua and whose family name is Christos. He did not introduce himself by saying, Hi, I'm Yeshua Christos of the Nazareth Christoses. You may know my folks, Mary and Joseph Christ. Rather, we are pro proclaiming that we believe that this human being, 
Yeshua of Nazareth, is also the long-hoped-for anointed one of God, Jesus, the Christ. And to push the boundaries of our understanding even farther, the creed adds God's only Son. Again, as with the use of Father earlier in the creed, the point here is not gender. The point here is, again, about relationship, that intimate family relationship. It would have been very easy without this designation, Son of God, to think of Jesus in his role as the anointed one of God, as almost like being God's CEO, the objective leader who will make sure things get done and get done properly. But the creed reinforces our scripture's emphasis on God's love as a parent for us, reminding us that through God's anointed one, we are brought into God's family. We are made a part of God's essence and family. We aren't proclaiming thoughts as much as we are describing our relationship as human beings with God. And the crucial point of that connection between us and God is Jesus Christ, God's only Son. We hear this in the combination of the scriptures for this morning, in that first Hebrew, First Testament scripture. King David wants to build God a temple, essentially a, a stone visual representation of God's connection to earth. God says, I have other plans. And we hear what those are. God has this message for David. God will build you a house. When your life is complete and you're buried with your ancestors, then I'll raise up your child, your own flesh and blood to succeed you, and I will firmly establish his rule. He will build a house to honor me, and I will guarantee his kingdom's rule permanently. I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him in the usual ways, the pitfalls and obstacles of this mortal life. But I will never remove my gracious love from him. Your family and your kingdom are permanently secured. I'm keeping my eye on them and your royal throne will always be there. Rock solid. God is assuring David that there will always be a connection between God and the world and human life, humanity. But it will be through a relationship established between God and a descendant of David. Well, for Paul and the other apostles, God fulfilled that promise in the person of Jesus who was a descendant on the human side of David. This is what we hear Paul proclaiming to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, notice that switch too, it can go both ways, 
called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding God's Son, who was, as to his human nature, a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we have received grace and apostleship to call all people to the obedience, and you also are among those who are called to belong to, to Jesus Christ. And then John sums it up, all of this together for us, um, in, a, in a little more poetic manner by saying, the word, the idea, the concept of God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory of God with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses' grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, or as some translate it here, the only begotten one who is at the Father's side, has made God known. Without Jesus, God is in many ways just an idea floating around in our thoughts. God is ethereal, out there distant, invisible, and unknowable. But with Jesus, in Jesus, God becomes flesh and blood with the dust of our earth on his feet. God is tangible, present, close, visible, and knowable. This is the way T.S. Eliot puts it in one of the four quartets. To apprehend, to, to understand this point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardor and selflessness and self-surrender. For most of us, there's only the unattended moment, that moment in and out of time, the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight, the wild time unseen, or the winter lightning, or the waterfall, or music heard so deeply that it's not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. These are only hints and guesses Hence, followed by guesses. The rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. That hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood is incarnation. Here in incarnation, here the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual or as he states it in one of his most famous lines, 
Jesus is the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. We believe in God, but without Jesus, God is in some ways just a great idea. The good news for us is we believe in God and in Jesus, the Christ, God's Son, our brother. Jesus is the crucial point of intersection between God and human beings. Jesus is the still point of the turning world. Thanks.